Okay, thank you. Um, okay, Judges 9, Abimelech. Um, I wonder if you're kind of crazy going, what is this story? Why are we having all these crazy stories? I'm wondering why I didn't untangle this earlier. Um, but uh, I, would, I, I love a good story, and I learn with stories. Um, maybe it's because I'm from Mississippi, and we didn't have much to do except tell funny stories. Uh, so that was our entertainment, um, how we uh, kept life going. But, uh, but I hope that, you're, that these stories will come alive to you as we learn more. And so I want to give a little context Let's start with uh, Judges 8. I want to read the last couple of verses. Um, last week we talked about Gideon and how he uh, helped with throwing off the Midianites. And let's just look because this week's story is a little bit of an unusual Judges cycle. Remember at the beginning I said there are going to be all these cycles where God's people forget him and then they sin and uh, worship other gods and God brings an enemy then they cry out for help then God sends a judge to save them and then they go back and have peace and then they do it again and that's the cycle that kind of has a downward spiral uh, as we go through judges but this one's a little different but it starts off the same if we look at uh, judges 8 verses 33 so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Okay, so... um. What's happening this time, if you uh, start looking at Judges 9, um, I tell you what, gonna go, let's just keep reading because I, I, I love to set the story up with the actual God's word, <laughs> not just my word. Then Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, okay, remember we met him last week. He's the illegitimate, he's like the concubine's son. So a concubine is probably like a kind of half legit mistress, okay? She ha is more than just a mistress. She kind of has some standing, but it's not a wife. And so it's sort of like the off, uh, the, off, the son that's not quite part of the family. Um, then Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Jerubal Jerubbaal reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember that I am your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. So they gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baalbareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Orpah and killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king behind, beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Okay, 
to us right now in Fort Worth, Texas, we're like, here's a long ago story. Here's some names of towns that sound weird. Susan can't even pronounce the name right. Like, what's this have to do with me and my carpool line at 3.30 today? You know? Okay, we're going to get there. Just hold on. But this is what we're, we're going to notice right, off the, right out of the gate. The enemy this week is not outside of Israel. The enemy is right there inside of Israel. It's one of Israel's own people. Abimelech is the son of Gideon, the previous judge. Remember last week we talked about how Gideon said, no, no, you can't make me king, but yet Abimelech is named, my father is king. Uh, no, 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 you need to have Yahweh as your king, but yet Gideon had 70 sons, had a huge, you know, obviously lots of wives, accepted gold. You know, he did some king-like things, okay? But I also want us to get kind of the, the, the kind of the, uh, the, what's happening that I did not know unless someone else told me, which is why you have commentaries, okay? So Abimelech uh, is, uh, when he is going to the men um, at Shechem, his mother is more from Shechem. Shechem was a town that was already there when the Israelites came to Israel, came to the promised land. So it was pre-Israelite. And so this is probably some of the previous uh, previous people that were there. So there's a little bit of a racial undertone, a little bit of a tribalism, more of we're the people that were here first, and then these Israelites are now in power, and Jerubal's, I mean, uh, Abimelech's argument is I'm, I'm kind of got my foot in both worlds because he's half Israelite and half Shechemite, okay? So that's partly what's going on that I just needed to understand that. Um, so we'll keep on having some more clues like that as we work through. But the first point is when kudzu is king. Now, this is kudzu. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in Texas? Okay. I don't know what you call it. It's, 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 it was so prevalent where I grew up that on, like on the side of the highway, there would be just hills and trees covered with this vine called kudzu. I think it was imported from China to help like with erosion and it backfired on whoever did that. Now you can't get rid of it. You know, like mint is invasive, but at least it's an herb and it smells good. This is like a weed that's like a vine that is so invasive, you, you just can't even, I cannot think of a good use for it now. Um, and so we're gonna look at when kudzu is king, because we'll see later, that's the curse that Jotham, if you read the story, that's what's coming. So first of all, let's look in those first few verses of chapter nine, we see treachery. We see treachery first of Abimelech and of this town of Shechem. So first of all, notice, I don't even know if I would call Abimelech a judge, but he's a self-imposed leader, a self-imposed king. Um, instead of waiting, uh, we've seen our last judges, God chooses them, calls them to lead. Most of them are like, I don't, I'm weak, like Gideon. It's like I'm the least of my clan. And here is the opposite. Abimelech's like, 
my daddy was kind of a king and I need to be king. And this is how this works. And instead of protecting the people, he actually brings in violence. So, like I said, his uh, mom had ties to Shechem. Um, so he uses that kind of tribalism argument. I'm more like you. Um, and then he also uses a pragmatic argument of, isn't it better to have one leader instead of this 70 son apparatus we've got going on? And then he's made king, not by God, but by the money in the temple of a false god, Baal Barith. And then just to make it even less appetizing, he then kills all 70 of his brothers on a stone at Orpah. Okay, which almost has, like, think about what that means. That means he and his people didn't go in and just start stabbing people. And it was just like a village out, you know, murdered or assassinations happened here and there. He lined them up and one at a time executed them. So it almost has this sense of human sacrifice or just like really calm, just cold execution of your own family. So we see all of this stuff. He's used religion, he's used the tribalism, he used pragmatic arguments, and Shechem fell for it hook, line, and sinker. They said, this is a great idea. He is more like us, and he's more like them. This is the perfect combo leader. And it does make sense. We would rather have somebody kind of like us in charge than these 70 sons of Gideon. So the other thing to know about Shechem is imagine if Mexico went to the Alamo this week, and this was on the news, and decided the new governor of Texas and crowned him there. You would all be just like having a conniption fit. Not because it happened, like if it happened in McKinney, you'd, you'd be upset, but at the Alamo? In San Antonio? Don't they know what has happened there? It'd be like at Gettysburg if they said, we're going to have slavery again. Or went to, you know, just any place that this is like a historical marker for Israel's covenantal history. Because that's the first place Abraham made an altar to God in the promised land when he was given the promise. It was in that location. When Joshua and God's people came across the Jordan, this is where they came and sacrificed. It has huge significance for the Israelites. So when they hear that Abimelech has been crowned king at Shechem, that's what's behind this, the, the action. So he is uh, also using the Shechem people. This is interesting. The Shechem men did not do the murdering. They did not go and get their hands dirty. What they did is slid some gold across the table and sat back and let it happen. They used their influence, they used their connections. They were like, oh, we're, you know, we didn't do anything. Abimelech came in and here he is. Oh, we didn't kill anybody, but here's our leader, the person we supported. So all of that is happening to set up Jotham, the one son, the one legitimate son who escaped. And he jumps on Mount Gerizim. Now, 
he, you also have to understand Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessing. So there are two mountains around Shechem, and one was where God's people, they divided up God's people back in Moses' day, and one group of people shouted the blessings, and one group of people on the other mountain shouted the curses of following or not following God. So again, more covenantal history. Jotham runs up on the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim, and let's see what he says, okay? So let's get back to chapter 9, verse, uh, well, half of 5. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king beside the Terebeth tree, blah, blah, blah. So here's what Jotham says. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease my giving oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men and go to sway over trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, uh, by the way, you should hear this in a very sarcastic tone. <laughs> and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. But you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he is your brother? If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled. Okay, and this is where you go, I have no idea what all that's about. Except the sarcastic part, I can kind of get that. Okay, I'm not going to get into what, like, I don't think the main point of the curse is what, what does the vine represent? What does, you know, the fig tree represent? Can we see? Yeah, this is the big point of Jotham's curse. You two deserve each other. You two have fun with all that. And the bramble idea is kudzu. The brambles, all they're good for are, they're not good for shade. They're not good for supporting trees. Okay, think about the dumb trees here. First of all, the trees are asking for something they probably don't need here. But all the worthy plants, all the people that would have good characteristics of leadership and helpful are all like, yeah, I'm not doing that. The bramble says, sure, you take me on, but let me tell you something. Don't, don't 
don't work against me because you're gonna get what you're asking for. I burn easily. Bramble burns better than it rains, okay? Um, Bramble is great at burning. And so he basically says, you just, you have it. You can have Abimelech, um, but let me tell you, I am cursing you that you're gonna destroy each other. And this is sort of like the wife whose husband had has a mistress and wants to get married and the original wife is like, you know what, you can have him. Because guess what, we're gonna see. He's gonna cheat on the mistress next. More to come on that. Okay, so he has this poetic prophecy and he runs stage left, exits the scene. We see Ecclesiastes 10.16 kind of coming to bear, or Proverbs 28.2. Uh, Proverbs 28.2 says, A lawless nation will have many bad leaders. So when you're in Shechem, and that's the kind of leader you want, that's the kind of leader you're going to get. Ecclesiastes, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Woe to you, land, when you choose a leader who's like a little kid and is not full of character and is not like the fig tree, the vine, the olive tree. So here we get Bramble Justice coming and let's skip ahead to 22. So we see what happens. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might be settled and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's not important. Okay, so now what's happening is it's three years later. Okay, first of all, before I just leave, Remember this, why are we calling Gideon Jerubbaal in this story so much? I wish it were Gideon because I can say Gideon. But remember, Jerubbaal is a nickname given to Gideon when he tore down Baal's altar. So when you see Jerubbaal being used, we should be hearing it like the man who fought Baal, the man who fought Baal, the man who fought Baal. And what Jotham has said in this curse is, you can follow and be loyal to a Jerubbaal, the man who fought Baal, or you can be loyal to the Baal follower whose kingship has been funded by Baal Brief. Two worldviews, choices again for God's people, okay? They chose the Baal, they chose the Bramble, okay? So, in this, we're seeing this curse is coming true because God remembers what happened and he sent this just divisive spirit between the two, okay? Um, so, we see that, the, that later we, there's another guy called Gail. I'm not going to read all this, but hopefully you did. Gail, the son of Ebed, that's, Someone, again, I'm not this smart, but somebody said the name is Gail, the servant's son. So this is like a junior officer. This is like, you know, the guy at the bar bragging about, who's Abimelech? We can take him on. It's kind of like the redneck with the 
silky cheesy shirt on and he's got you know bad stubble and a little greasy hair and he's drinking too much and he's like a low-end person but he's like man i could like gets a few drinks in him and he starts you know dissing the leader of Bimelech. when Abimelech's kind of inside guy reports back says hey you better take care of this they're their Shechem is now doing the same thing with Gael against Abimelech. They're cheating again. But somebody even lesser than Abimelech, not even somebody kin to Gideon or a person of, you know, standing. It's like a really, like, their, their takes are going downhill. Let's put it that way. Okay, so, of course, Abimelech is not going to have that. And so we see what happens. Um... He goes, he fights him, and then let's pick up in verse 42. This is after Abimelech has taken care of Gael, the usurper. Does he just stay home? Does he go back? No, he is ticked off. Now he's ticked off at Shechem for cheating on, on him with Gael. Verse 42, and it came about the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. Okay, this these are people that are like going out to farm. Like these are like the, the townspeople. These are people that probably had no idea any of this was happening, you know, in the back rooms of power. And he looked and there were people coming out of the city and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it and demolished the city and sowed it with salt. That's so they couldn't plant anything if they even recovered. Now, when all the men of the Tower of Shechem had heard that, so these are probably the power people, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith, back to Baal Berith. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Salmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees. Remember the curse, y'all and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow, bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. <laughs> okay. Woo, do you think when the smoke was coming, the men of Shechem started thinking about Jotham? Because he said, may the fire burn you. Okay, so here's the first half of that curse is coming true. Literally, fire is defeating the men of Shechem who made this power play against Gideon's family and against God. Okay, but the Bimelech's not satisfied. I don't know what the Bez did to make him mad, but something must have gone down or else he was just, you know, had that rage and adrenaline and he went to the next town and said, let's do that again. Let's gather up those brambles, put them next to their tower and smoke them out. But there was a woman in that tower and like one of the commenters say, commentators said, because I, oh, it was so funny, I laughed out loud listening to this podcast. He said, a woman with keen foresight and strong biceps <laughs> took a 
stone, a big old stone. Why someone would lug that up a tower during a retreat, I have no idea. Maybe it was already up there, I don't know. But this woman, again a woman, remember back to Deborah, uh, just it's almost like so simple, it's funny, just drops it on his head. Just drops it on Abimelech. Then the male chauvinist that he is, worried about his reputation, is dying and tells his servant, please kill me so my tombstone won't say a girl killed him. Okay? So, here we have the three years later, which is pretty short amount of time in God's economy of time, I think, uh, vengeance happening. Jotham's curse coming true. It wasn't like God's judgment of fire and brimstone and there's a tornado and everybody sees what's happening. Most people did not see that God himself was doing this. They just saw a bunch of people fighting over power. And the people, though, that heard that curse, I hope their ears tingled. Because this is like that under-the-radar fire curse that God can do. And so that, that is the story of this week's judge or anti-judge, okay? But in this story, we don't hear a lot about God. We have these two little, two little kind of sections that we see him work. Where it peels back the curtain and says, but God did this and God did that. So we ask sometimes when things are happening that are not just. When the Jothams go, my family just got murdered and slaughtered. This isn't fair. This isn't right. We sometimes go, is God gone? Where is God? And you know, it's a great prayer to say, where are you, Lord? Where are you? And maybe you have not been robbed at gunpoint. Maybe you have not been, you know, had some huge injustice done against you. But sometimes I ask that when the enemies of the world assault my children with their cultural ideologies. And I say, where are you, God? I taught that child the catechism. Why? Where are you? Why is this happening? When maybe your husband doesn't get a promotion because he did the right thing and his bosses didn't like it. And now you're strapped and your grocery bill is stretched. Where are you, Lord, when Satan himself is lying to me and tempting me? Why are you letting this happen? And then you can look at injustices that are plain to see. Why did that little girl get kidnapped? Why, why are the people that have power in this world getting away with things? And we have the same cry that he has heard from the beginning when the ground cried out when Cain murdered Abel. Why? And God hears blood crying out to him. And wh why and where, Lord, is a great prayer. Um, I want to just remind us of Psalm 139, 7 through 11. I think it's on your handout. And my version in this Bible is different than the handout. I usually do ESV on the handout, and then I always forget that my Bible is a different version. But 139, if you're ever in that place where God feels like he's absent, 
This is a good verse for me. Seven, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So especially when you're waiting, especially when you feel like someone has done you wrong, and it can be something from your neighborhood to something really bad, like a spouse or a parent or church leadership or things where you're like, God, do you see what's going down? And you're just quiet. You're not, where's, where's the fire and brimstone? You know, and you feel like Jotham going, I want to curse somebody. <laughs> I'm not saying do that. But anyway, because of what's coming. So we see, though, that justice is done here. Now, this is the other thing. God's justice, we know, we may not see justice for things that we've suffered for. People may get away with murder in our lives. From the big kinds of stuff to the little kinds of stuff. But we know eventually, when Jesus comes back, all that's taken care of. But God also sometimes now takes care of things too. And we see that in this story. We see it throughout scripture. Um, but Tim Keller gave me some really good points of, of defining the kind of justice we see here in this story. The first thing, it is unseen. And this is what we referred to earlier. It's God is very quiet. He is not sending a prophet to say, here is what is happening today in Israel. I am putting forth justice. He's just taking care of it. And it's very behind the scenes. And we don't know about the divisive spirit. And we don't know how long things would have gone on without it and all that. Okay? Second thing is, is delayed. Jotham leaves the story. We never see Jotham again. Jotham is not the one that gets to kill Abimelech. Jotham is not the one that burns down Shechem. He says his peace and leaves it to God. That is how we need to emulate Jotham. And we leave it to God. And three years is a long time to Jotham. And really long to Gideon's grandchildren, I bet. And to all the people that were undone by this huge slaughter. But three years is nothing to God. That's like, you know, a trip to get a drink of water for God, you know. Thirdly, the justice comes through the outworking of human sin. This does not mean God is the author of sin. We know that from other passages. God does not make them sin, but he is using what's already there. He is using Abimelech's pride and ambition and we see from the start to the breath he dies with his worry about his reputation and his position we see Shechem being just disloyal oh twice in the story we see them being like that just disloyal and we see that like one of the commentators Ralph Davis says the punish of brambles burn better than rain and basically the punishment does fit the crime it fits them. They are both 
tangled up by their own sin. It's God gives them enough, lets them have their rope, and they hang on it. This is not karma. This is not how the world works. This is God. And look at your handout, Romans 1. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Basically, God sees it. They can suppress it. They can disguise it. They can... Uh, be really clever and crafty and God sees it all it does not surprise him and you know he's going to judge it he's going to judge it um, but then just before you just go man I told you Old Testament was rough where's Jesus in this why does God put this random story in our Bibles except just to say man men and women stink um, grace comes in so clearly because if you notice again the cycle is different there's not even a cry out for help there's not even a crowd it is like when my kids would play and I would see it I'd see how they're about to get in trouble but I'm gonna let them play until they realize it and before they can before God's people could even get it out of their mouths, God's like, I'm sweeping in. Just like that mama sometimes like, yeah, no, I'm sweeping in. It's too dangerous. I can't handle it. It's too much. I'm sweeping in before they do something really they just really go off. And God comes in and just as Shechem looks like it's gonna be the standard for how to rebel against God's covenant. He burns the tower down. He cleanses it. He lets the evil devour itself. And he comes in, and we're not even going to study the next two judges. They don't even have much written about them. And he sends back-to-back -back judges that have nothing bad happening that we're, we've got written about. It's kind of good not to have any copy in the Bible sometimes. But we've got Tola and Jer. And Tola judges 23 years, and Jair judges 22. So you have almost about 50 years of what appears at least to be calm. That's grace. They didn't even have the wherewithal to cry out for help. This is such a mess, and this shows just how freely God saves his people, that actually Jotham's curse that was said on the Mount of Blessing turns out to be a blessing for God's people. Okay, so just hold that for a second. That this curse against God's enemies ends up being the way God blesses his people. So God swoops in. It's not fancy. It's not dramatic. But God saves his people from themselves. From themselves this time. Remember, the enemy is within Okay, now, all of that, what has that got to do with me today? What has that got to do? Okay, again, remember, when we're talking Old Testament Israel, we are not talking about 
how to run a country. We're gonna, of course, I can't help but to think about America right now and leadership and how people get into power and how America's divided into tribes and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that we can learn and we can maybe apply some stuff towards that idea, but our focus is what is God saying about his people here? Because Israel is the church now. God's people in the Old Testament were Israel. God's people in the New Testament, the church. We're the church. Okay, what does this say about Trinity? What's this say about the Presbyterian Church of America? What's this say about Protestant churches here in the world? Think about God's people. That's where the application we're going, okay? So we have to look then that the enemy sometimes against God's people comes from within God's people. Whoa, that is scary. That is weird, but we shouldn't be surprised. If you look at New Testament passages about false prophets, um, we need to discern what is bramble or kudzu leadership and what is biblical leadership. Biblical leadership is given to us by God in Scripture, and he does. He gives us so many things to look at in Scripture. The bramble leadership is going to be more pragmatic. It's going to be worldly choice of leaders, a more of a tribalism choice, more of a one of us. She looks like me. He votes like I do. We have the same brother-in-law. Is that kind of stuff. Okay? So, I'm not going to read these, but if you want to see warnings against bramble leadership, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, it talks about false prophets that even look like angels of light. Satan himself can look like an angel of light. There can be people that, oh, they look so Christian and they look so good and they say such the right thing, but start looking at what's in their wake. Is it chaos or is it peace? Is it power or is it love for others? Is it protection? 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, where people were, they were not listening. God's people didn't want to listen to what the, the, the teachers, true teachers were teaching because it, it was not what they wanted to hear. It was not what they wanted to hear. And how many, especially of our young people, are just like, I just don't like that. Did God really say that? We're right back in the Garden of Eden with Eve and Satan. Did God really say you can't have that fruit? Then Matthew 7, 15 through 17, God tells us to watch out for false prophets. And how do you know if they're a false prophet? Because they kind of look like an angel of light. How am I supposed to tell? You look at their fruit. Look at their fruit. Okay, an example of this within the church is if you... I think it was during COVID because I was walking and listening to podcasts then. It's the whole thing that went down at Mars Hill, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. One of the, there are a couple of quotes that came out of uh, people reacting to that. And it's basically, there was a leader, Mark Driscoll, that was great. I mean, he was great and he was so gifted and it ended up this, this huge church imploded because of his leadership that was not biblical. You compare the fruit of his, his, his leadership and somebody said, Gordon O. Estrich, I don't know how to say his name and he's American or, or, or modern day. Um, chaos that comes, he said, you can see the chaos that comes without proper leadership. Remember, God is a God of peace and order. 
protection, building up. But if a leadership is tearing down things, that's a sign of bad fruit. The other person, Gary Miller reacted saying, giftedness of the leader is not an excuse for lack of godliness. So you can have a very gifted person. He's really fast on his feet. He's really good with people. He knows so much theology. She has got so many Instagram followers. She's got it all together. She's really well connected. She goes to Washington, D.C. and prays with the First Lady. She, she knows all the people in Fort Worth that are worth knowing. She is such a light. But yeah, she does gossip. She does pull some manipulation tricks to make people choose her idea for the spring luncheon. She does, yeah, she does kind of intimidate people and I'm kind of scared to talk to her. What kind of Bramble leadership are we buying into as people like Shechem did? Are we really choosing biblical leaders? So we contrast then Abimelech. So that's us as a group. How do you choose leaders? What are the leaders you're drawn to? How are you choosing them? But then maybe you're the person that needs to ask yourself, how am I a leader within the Christian family? Abimelech was self-serving. He brought destruction and death, not life and healing. And his brambly ways choked and killed off people. How are you? Are you more like the Titus 1, uh, if you look at, and this, I'm not, we're running out of time. So Titus 1, 6 through 9, just lists all these beautiful traits of godly leaders within God's family. The elders and the deacons. How, this, this goes beyond officers in the church. This, is, this goes to how you lead a small group. How you lead your neighborhood, Christian friends. It goes to how you lead Sunday school classes. And within the community of God's people, how you treat one another. I want to say that I have the privilege of going to uh, session meetings in our church. And I have seen from working at Trinity with the diaconate, with those men and women, and with the men of the session, and with the women's shepherding team, these leaders that we have put in front of people to help us how much they they mirror that list of good biblical leadership they are not vying for their way they are not putting people down under a thumb of power they are very sacrificial and i see it behind the scenes i just want to tell y'all that 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 i just want to be thankful for that because there are many churches where that is not the case so before I end, I want us to look in the mirror, though, at ourselves. What kind of leader are you? Think of a way you may lead someone else. It doesn't have to be with a title even behind it. Do you lead out of selfish ambition? I'm leading my children because they're going to reflect on me one day, and they better do a good job of that. I don't want to be the mother that was like, ooh, she lost control of them. You know, is, or is that why you're leading your children? At work. But really think about how our behavior within the church family reflects on our Savior. 
the world doesn't believe that we have power because we don't. We don't have the power to trust God to lead in this mixed up way called the Beatitudes. In this upside down kingdom driven by the Sermon on the Mount with a savior and leader that led by dying. That does not make sense to the world. And sometimes we lead out of worldly things we trust. So what are your methods? Are your methods coming out of humility or almost a disguised pride? Like you pretend to be humble. You say the humble thing, but you're really like, you know, doing that girl thing, you know, where, oh yeah, like, yes, she's so sweet, but I'm just not sure she'd be good material for a teacher. And you say it in front of 20 people, you know, stuff like that. Uh, do you use your tongue in a good way, a patronizing way, uh, a building up way? Do you use it like Jesus did? Do you have patience? Do you, do you wait for the long game of people changing in God's timing? Do you want to make a big splash as a leader and have success? Or do you look along the way at how can I be faithful and teach faithfulness in how I lead, not just where we're leading to, the event being good, but the process is sanctification for all involved in a good way. Do you gather support? Do you get all your friends to vote the way you're gonna vote at church? Do you, I mean, and it's so weird saying this to y'all because I don't feel like Trinity does this. I'm just trying to think of ways we can mess this up. Do we push my agenda? Oh, this is what we need to do. Watch out folks, she's got an agenda. Are you that person? Um, are you using what we would have that would be tribalism, neighborhood, social status, age groups? Those are the tribes within Trinity that could become a problem. Or are we diverse and are working together? So instead of choosing all these cultural pragmatic reasons, instead of choosing the tribal reasons and acting like Abimelech, and um, do we look at how God does leadership in the Bible. And one of the main ways we see that we can avoid this is by being thankful. Because what was, what did that, remember that little bit that we read earlier? Why did they do this? They forgot to be thankful to Gideon. They forgot their God. So as we forget and are not thankful, we are setting ourselves up for this. Ingratitude towards leaders and their family sacrifices is ingratitude towards God. Ralph Davis says, when we ignore the instruments of God's grace, we demean the giver of that grace. And I just want to close out with this story. And I may have said this in another Bible study in the past, but it's such a great story. In a book I read one time, there was a story of this woman who was, she was not married. She was older and her niece goddaughter somebody was getting married and she spent a fortune on the trousseau this is an old-timey story um because <laughs> i don't know if anybody does this anymore she picked out the most pale pink satin with the most intricate stitching she hired these people to do 
smocked robe. She had the slippers, the same pale pink. She, she had it all. She even had that special laundry detergent that you can only do your lingerie in. I mean, she sent this box of just nightgown after nightgown after night, like all just the best stuff ever. And it was almost like a party as you unwrapped because it was all packed in matching tissue. I mean, the whole thing was, she had so much fun putting it together. And as all good brides do, she sat down to write a thank you note. And she said, dear Aunt Nellie, thanks so much for the trunk of clothes. Love, Susie. I mean, I don't know why, but that story makes me want to cry. Because when that woman opened that thank you note, how embarrassing, how, what a letdown, how demeaning. Because she really wasn't thankful for what she's got. And are we not thankful for our leaders? Are we not thankful for the very humble people that maybe aren't bright and shiny and maybe they're not on TV or they're not on Instagram, but God is using the, the most special things that he is sending us as a church to build it, to honor him. And when we ignore them and we are not even grateful and we don't even say thank you, we don't act thankful, it leaves room for those biting comments and the, 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 the yucky that can come and divide a church against itself. And we're right where Abimelech and Shechem are. So I'm not paid to say this, but it is Pastor Appreciation Month in October. <laughs> and I'm also not saying that you should all write a thank you note because you may have your own way of thinking, but it's something for us to consider that our leaders here, um, that one way we can guard our congregation is to be thankful for the gifts God has given us. Okay, off my soapbox, into your small groups, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you guard us with gifts of good leaders, and I pray that we would rest in you with the leaders you've given us. And Father, also that we would rest if anyone has harmed us, that we would leave that vengeance to you because we, we don't need that, that heavy load. And we give it to you knowing that you take care of things. And sometimes you take that harm and you put it on Jesus. And you've done that for us when we've harmed other people too. So we uh, wanna ask that those women here who are, are carrying injustice that they would be able to leave it at your feet and that you would give us forgiveness where even leaders have hurt us in christ's name amen